So today we have Adam Creighton from The Australian. Uh, Adam is actually the DC correspondent at The Australian, so he has a very unique insight. And his job is really to cover what's going on in America for an Australian paper. But I wanted to bring on Adam today to talk about what's going on in Australia, kind of from his perspective as someone um, born and raised in Australia. Adam has a master's in philosophy from Oxford. He's been um, an economics policy advisor for the Australian government. He worked for a bit at the Wall Street Journal. It's a very interesting background. Um, and yeah, so when I saw that Victoria was entering, Victoria, by the way, uh, a population of, I think, seven, almost seven million people locked down today for the sixth time over eight cases of, of COVID-19. So I thought, who better than, than to bring on Adam to talk about, uh, because uh, although Australia is a U.S. ally, we share kind of this Anglosphere heritage, uh, Australia also has a very unique culture. And uh, I think it's, a, it's difficult for a lot of Americans to understand what exactly is going on with all the craziness. And Adam, how do we explain the cultural mindset of an Australian citizen? Because it seems to me, and tell me if I'm wrong, that the majority of Australians are supporting this sixth lockdown and lockdowns into the future. Yeah, Jordan, look, thanks for having me. And um, yeah, look, I've, I've been in the States three months, but it's been hard to let go actually of Australia because it's been such a gripping story back home. Uh, it's, it's hard to ignore. Look, why is it's so popular. Look, I think it still is. The majority of people still support what's going on in Australia, but it's a much, much smaller majority than it would have been, say, six months ago. Uh, I mean, I, it seemed kind of for most of last year that the Australian government and the various states had had got the virus under control, and so there was a there was a sense amongst people that it, that it worked, so to speak, that the policies worked. I mean, of course, I might have a different view. I think it's more luck. It was more uh, being an island. And of course, not having much of the virus to begin with. Uh, but uh, putting that aside, I think most people thought that the government had it under control. But then, of course, we had these outbreaks over the summer, actually, the Australian summer, sorry. So December, January, there were a few outbreaks and there were lockdowns throughout the various capitals. And then as it came into the Australian winter, which is now, uh, there were there were many outbreaks in Sydney and Melbourne. And so there were multiple, multiple lockdowns. And and I don't think the government's politically had any choice because they'd invested so much in this narrative of lockdowns working that they couldn't suddenly say politically, look, it was a stupid idea. So they've just they've just kept doing it. I mean, you know, kind of they have a they have a hammer, if you like, and everything is a nail. Um, and that's that's you know, that's currently the situation. And I don't see politically how they get out of it. I mean, vaccination in Australia is, you know, about I think it's about 18 or 20 percent have had one shot which is much, much lower, obviously, than the US and any other country. And extraordinarily, in my view, the Australian government, the federal government, which controls the border, has said the border will stay shut until 80% of all adults are vaccinated, fully vaccinated, which could mean the border doesn't open until next year. And it's been shut for a year already. So extraordinary stuff back home. Yeah, you were one of the first people... Um, in, in terms of Australian pundits and members of the press to come out and question the lockdowns. Mm. And <laughs> I wonder from your perspective, because you said that maybe there's a coalition being built against lockdowns very slowly. And it seemed like at first 
you probably all you probably received was like hate mail and mm, all this craziness. Yeah, Do you see at least a trend in, in the right direction? Because you were, you know, you were opposed to lockdowns when essentially every single one of your countrymen probably thought of you as, you yeah. know, an ins insane person. And, and I think, has there been like a gradual move towards your-, your Oh, your look, I think process? it definitely has. And, you know, you're right. You know, I think in the middle of April last year, I wrote a column in The Australian, um, which said that we might be overreacting uh, to the virus. And yeah, it got a lot of blowback to say the least. I had death threats, many death threats. And, you know, I had to change my name on social media. It was just extraordinary. And all I was doing was pointing out that, uh, you know, this virus was nowhere near as bad as the Spanish flu, like nowhere near, not even anywhere near it historically. It was more like the, you know, the flus of the 50s and the 60s, but we were behaving like it was the bubonic plague. And I just pointed that out. And yeah, it was, uh, it was controversial. And look, it remains so all of last year, but I think definitely uh, without question, more and more people uh, both in the media and I think in the wider public. I mean, I can just tell by the messages I get, you know, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, uh, coming around to my view, which basically hasn't changed the whole time, pretty much. I mean, I was wrong about the vaccines. I didn't think that we'd get vaccines so soon. And it's, you know, it's fantastic that we did. Uh, but apart from that, I haven't changed my view at all. I still think that we overreacted and it's it's come at extraordinary cost. But uh, just in terms of the, of the political situation back home, uh, I think certainly the governing Liberal Party, which in Australia is the centre-right party, uh, they're really having a tough time. There's a lot of their base are furious about, you know, what has happened and how they've been instrumental in supporting lockdowns, uh, both at the federal level and also the state of New South Wales, the biggest state in Australia, uh, where the capital is Sydney. Uh, that state has a Conservative government and, and it, of course, has has most recently called in the army to help the lockdown there, which is just quite, you know, it's something that's never happened in Australian history. Uh, so you've got army, um, the army helping the New South Wales police uh, keep people in their homes and actually check on people's homes, like just knock randomly to make sure that people uh, who are in the home should be there, uh, which is just, you know, mind-blowing stuff. Um, it, it seems like the, the major political powers in Australia, it, it's more so... They're not fighting over ideology. It's like a battle of competence. If, is that correct? Like, it seems like, oh, you know, we, we can enforce the lockdowns better than you can. Like, that's basically what the, the debate is over at this point, right? Yeah, look, the I think the fundamental philosophical problem is that people think that governments through, you know, sins of commission and omission are controlling the trajectory of the virus and that there's no role for luck or there's, there's no role for nature, which, which, to me is totally absurd. And so, yes, you're quite right. Whenever something goes wrong, it's gotta be someone's fault. You know, it's gotta be, you know, some government department did something wrong, or there's gotta be a group of people that did something wrong. You know, there's always got to be blame. Um, through most of last year, actually, I was very, very careful not to, not to blame the Victorian government, which of course had that um, kind of 110 day lockdown last year, one of the most vicious in the world. And, and, Many Australians on the right blamed the Premier for the deaths of about, you know, 900 people because some of the security guards, which were contracted by the state government, uh, spread the virus. And so there were lots of, you know, there's lots of, oh, you know, he should resign. It's the Premier's fault. He's killed these people. I mean, I never said that because, look, there's always going to be mistakes, right? There's, it's, just, it's just a virus. You know, you can't, you can't you know, hold someone accountable for the behaviour of all other human beings in your state. There's always going to be errors. So... So in my column, I'm trying to always um, get across to Australians that there's this illusion of control that, 
we think we control nature, but we don't. And so you've got to have some humility. You've got to have, you know, a sense of humbleness about this virus. And, you know, sure, take precautions, but, you know, don't think that, that by some fiat, uh, some fiat order that you can stop it because you can't. Yeah, it, that, it seems that um, this, elim- this COVID elimination policy, it, it, just, it just shocked me. At what point do citizens start to think that Victoria is in a sixth lockdown? I don't know how many lockdowns, um, like Sydney, Melbourne, I, I've lost count of how many lockdowns <laughs> those places have entered. And it's all over like a very short amount of cases. And it seems that they're, they're stuck in this philosophy of like, okay, we have five new cases. And if we don't want to turn into 5,000 new cases, we're just going to have to lock down again. Yeah. And what's even, what's even more alarming is, um, so the data out of, so the vaccine has been um, entertained now as this escape route, but it seems the data out of the countries that first vaccinated, like Israel, um, Ireland, some other European mini states, there seems to be a point in which, um, the efficacy is like fading a little bit. Mm. So it, 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 I'm afraid that a country like Australia, which has already done so many lockdowns, they said that the vaccine is the, is the exit. And now you have a country like Israel, which is almost, uh, you know, I think like 80% of the population has received at least one dose and they're yes. going back into lockdown in September. So they were given this, this, off, this hypothetical off-ramp so what happens when that off-ramp no longer exists anymore? Like at some point, right, you need to uh, tell people that the only way is to, uh, you know, just let people live their lives. The only way to get through it is to actually get through it, not to just hide in your house mm. for eternity. Um, it's interesting, your, um, your, well, I guess not really, sort of neighbors, the, the Kiwis, they've, they've experienced a very similar issue in that, a lot of people are getting sick just from being stuck at home. Mm. Um, like their okay. hospitals are, are at a hundred percent capacity. They don't have a COVID problem, but they have an everything else problem. So it's just this, this cost benefit that has been thrown entirely out the window. It seems. Yep. No, it's true. Look, a few, a few brave economists have tried to put a cost actually for New Zealand in particular, which you just mentioned. And actually just, just while we're on New Zealand, it's interesting that, uh, vaccination level there is about 20% too, so very, very low. So it seems in Australia and New Zealand, there's, you know, because there's not much virus, there's been little incentive to go and get the vaccines. Um, uh, but, yeah, you're right, in New Zealand, um, young kids have gotten very sick and, and, and the leading theory as to why is because they haven't been exposed to the usual set of diseases that international travel tends to bring and, and so they've gotten very sick. And look, it may well be the sickness of those children, you know, is a greater cost to society than the lives that would have been saved uh, through various lockdowns. But, you know, what is clear that if you try to do a cost-benefit analysis, and of course it's very hard to says, you know, the counterfactual is hard to know, but, but if you plug in reasonable figures, you know, you end up with uh, society spending, you know, millions, millions and millions of dollars per life saved, uh, which would never have been seen rational uh, before 2020. And in the New Zealand case, I think, you know, there was, there was a study recently that said the cost was 13 times more than the New Zealand government would have paid before 2020 uh, to extend a life for one year, which is an extraordinary figure. In Australia, for instance, I mean, of course, there's all of the, you know, the cost of well-being of the borders being shut. And look, it's not just the international border. I mean, for your listeners, 
all of the states in Australia have closed their borders to each other, right, which has never happened before in Australian history. It's dubiously constitutional. It certainly would never happen in the US, I can imagine. Um, but, yeah, right now you can't fly from Sydney to Melbourne, which I think used to be the third or fourth busiest uh, thoroughfare in the world because they're two quite big cities. And, yeah, it's, it, it's, you know, it's just amazing. And more to the point, there hasn't even been a proper constitutional challenge, actually, because... Uh, I don't know. That's that's a whole other. There's podcast. a virus out there. You can't you can't get caught up in these laws of the virus out there. <laughs> you know. Yes. It, it just it, everything has been put aside for the for the pandemic. And I'm just reading like the, the breaking news today out of Sydney is that Sydney reported five deaths. So it was the worst day ever for the pandemic <laughs> in Sydney. And now you know that they've already been locked down for weeks. So the it, it seems that. No, very few people, and this definitely applies to, um, you know, the part of the world that you're from, seem to like go back and just examine what exactly is a lockdown? How is a lockdown helpful to our situation? Where did this lockdown concept come from? And this where the, I think that the Chinese influence plays in. And although, um, if you want to elaborate on this a little bit, I know that New Zealand is very much subject to um what beijing's influence operations but australia was always kind of a you know a solid um ally of the west yes. against the intrusion of uh you know chinese communist party ideology have you seen that that slip a little over the course of the pandemic mm -hmm. Well, look, I mean, certainly in the pandemic response, I would say, yes, we have followed a Chinese policy just, just like the rest of the world has. But more broadly, I think, I think Australia kind of hasn't really slipped yet. I mean, I think in the past four or five years, the Australian government has been very, um, well, it's, it's, it's very much stood up for our interests against China. And that's, and that's why China's put Australia in the deep freeze, uh, probably more than any other country. You know, they've slapped a lot of sanctions on our exports. They won't speak to our ministers. Um, <clears throat> yes, so we have very, very frosty relations with China. So, and um, so, no, look, I don't think we've slipped in that sense, but you're quite right. I wish more journalists in Australia and indeed around the world had just done a little bit more Googling earlier on last year. And they could have easily discovered that lockdowns were never part of a pandemic response in the West. And, not, and, and that's, that's very easy to find out. And even now, you find journalists are still incredulous on this point. They just assume that, oh, this is what you do. You force people to do things. But actually, no, you don't do that. Um, and so that is that is a great problem. Uh, New Zealand is probably different. It's a much smaller country than Australia. You know, something like four and a half million people, or maybe I'm even being generous there. Maybe it's less than that. <laughs> I haven't looked it up for a while. Yeah, I think uh, it's like five. I think that's that number is correct. It has a far left government, I would say, um, which is uh, probably more ideologically comfortable with, with the Chinese model, I suppose. Um, but I'd say even the, even the shine there of, of, of the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, I mean, she was, you know, lauded praise so much last year for her magnificent response. But, I mean, it's been locked, you know, locked away from the rest of the world now for one and a half years. Like, that's a long period of time. I mean, I was joking on Twitter recently of, you know, some expert, you know, slapping someone down for complaining about the length of time by them saying, look, it's not even 2% of a century yet, which, you know, it's just, I mean, it's a joke, but I mean, it is actually coming up to 2% of a century 
of these mandates and restrictions, which is an extraordinarily long period of time. And, and you're right about the off-ramp, which you mentioned earlier. You know, this, uh, by the way, the off-ramp was only tacked on recently. I mean, when, when zero COVID was so, so vigorously advocated in Australia, it was being advocated in June, July, August last year when there were no vaccines, right? So these people actually thought, uh, the proponents of this view actually thought that you could indefinitely, if you like, uh, keep a virus at bay through lockdowns. And of course, now they say, oh, well, we have to lock down until the vaccine arrives, which is intellectually, you know, a completely different view from what they said last year. And as you point out, it's not that promising about the vaccines. I mean, they they work to, to some extent. I mean, I've been vaccinated. I think it's sensible to get vaccinated, broadly speaking. Uh, but they don't seem to be highly effective. They don't stop transmission, clearly. They might stop it a bit, but not very much. Uh, so you're still going to get a lot of cases. Yeah, this is the problem with that, the radical zero COVID ideology. And it's at its worst in places like New Zealand and Australia, where five cases mean five million people need to suffer. So it's just, it, at some point, and I don't know who, do you think that there is someone there's some politician there's I know that you said like economists have have tried to put something out there that is somewhat rational. Do you think there's a point in time in which someone in the political class will say, listen, we just have to deal with this? Because like, <laughs> like the, yeah. the, the path forward for us for Australia, um, sadly, seems worse than almost any other country in the world because they just are so far away from acknowledging mm the reality of a virus that that isn't going away because they've embraced you know the zero covid doctrine or now the the 80 vaccination rate doctrine which is also uh might be impossible to to get to unless yes. you force people to, to, to yeah. well that's right look i mean i think by the end of this calendar year if if only 50 60 of australians are vaccinated and they're still massively short of you know from the 80 someone in one of the major parties will start to speak publicly about it being a ridiculous target. But so far, no one in, in, in the major political parties has said anything like that. They're very much invested in this strategy and no one dares publicly uh, challenge the goal of saving lives. I mean, saving lives is the new, you know, the new mantra, the new kind of goal, you know, the shining light on the hill. And of course, as you know, it's just saving lives from one particular disease. No one gives a stuff about any other lives. It's just, I mean, there's, there's something like 450 people die every day in Australia of, of something or another. And, you know, as you say, there's a few COVID deaths. And of course, that's sad for the families involved, but it's not an historic event. You know, I mean, people die all the time. Uh, that's just life. But if a politician said what I just said then, oh, my God, the, you know, the frenzy would be wild and they'd be destroyed, right? Because no one can say that. It's almost like, you know, last year people suddenly realised that there was death and, yeah. and, you know, people are like horrified that they're going to die. Well, you know, they are. Um, and in this futile effort to save lives, you, could, you, you know, you could say that two years almost have been ruined of, of people who are alive now, which is a long period of time. I mean, it's all very well for people in their 50s and 60s in big houses to sit home and, you know, tweet about saving lives at zero cost to themselves. But, you know, for uni students, for high school students, you know, for people even who want to see the world and travel, I mean, uh, you know, the last few years have been awful. They've been stuffed completely, really. And some of them don't even realise yet, but, but, but they really have. And indeed, 
will will normal travel ever come back? I mean, you know, I increasingly am skeptical that you'll be able to fly from Sydney to London for two thousand dollars like you used to be able to do. I just don't think that's going to come back, maybe ever. Yeah, and and the the fact that a lot of people don't realize that you can't even fly from one Australian state to another is just shocking. I mean, how do you? I know that Australia is a is an economically wealthy country, so you can kind of hold on for a while while there's no economic productivity happening. Yeah, and I don't know exactly what percentage of the of the economy is tourism and 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 travel and transportation, but eventually there comes a point in time where people start to really suffer. Do you, do you see that? starting to happen yeah look i think it is country. starting to happen because last year when there was the the first lockdown if you like in in march april may which was about seven to eight weeks i think and that was the whole country the federal government unveiled an extremely generous uh, wage subsidy scheme probably more generous than any other country in the world um and if, I, I think from memory it was something like twelve hundred dollars every two weeks went to every uh worker who was uh, partly stood down um, and because the economy was shut down basically everyone lost their jobs almost I mean it was enormous increase in unemployment in the you know the retail sector etc uh, but they've been obviously more reluctant to do it um, with successive lockdowns because it gets you know it gets more and more expensive and I think this this latest lockdown the support has not been the same and so people are angrier because they're not getting as much free money anymore so there's suffering there but you are right that, I mean, Australia is very lucky. It is a wealthy country and it's wealthy mainly because of the iron ore we have at the moment, which China needs for its development and it can't get from any other country in the world. So as much as China hates Australia at the moment, it's still buying more iron ore from us than it ever has at extremely high prices. Uh, so Australia has rivers of gold, if you like, in that sense. And on the tourism point, I think Australia is one of the few countries in the world where Australians, you know, because they are wealthy, I guess they spend more overseas on holidays than foreigners spend in Australia. And so when the government forces everyone to stay home, actually, there's more tourism being spent, assuming that those Australians spend the same amount at home, which is you know, a big assumption. But, but nevertheless, you do find at the moment, uh, domestically in the, you know, the posh parts of Australia, the expensive parts are just booming with domestic tourism. So, so tourism, yeah, I don't think is where you'll get the pinch point. I think, I think Australians will get sick of not being able to leave the country. You know, it's been 16 months now where you can't leave the country. I mean, I had to get permission from the government to fly to Washington, which is pretty amazing, right? I had to fill out a form and I had to make a case that it was, you know, permanent. And so I was allowed to go. Most but people... if you just want to go to London and see your mum, you can't go. Yeah, so that's what I understand. I think a lot of Americans understand that most people who want to leave Australia cannot unless they have a professional obligation that is signed off on by yeah. the government, right? Yeah, yes. And I had to promise that I wouldn't go back for I think four or five months or something like that. So I had to actually sign a declaration saying I will not go back. And the reason that is, is because you know, there are caps on the number of people that can fly into the country every week. And those caps have been lowered all the time. Uh, and so you've, you've still got something like 30,000 Australians stranded overseas who want to go home and they can't go home because practically the only way you can is to, is to buy a business class airfare because they're the only, um, you know, the only people the, air, the airlines will accept given those caps I just mentioned. 
And, you know, it's really expensive to fly business class to Australia. It's, you know, $10,000 one way. Uh, so, so a lot of people are stranded. And there's a lot of anger, I think, about that that is brewing too amongst normal people. So, look, look there definitely is a lot more anger. And I tell you, there's going to be a huge amount of anger if, as you said earlier, these vaccines prove to, to wear off or not be particularly effective because then it raises the question, what on earth have we been doing for 16 months? Like, I mean, we should have just taken the hit, you know, back last year mm-hmm. and now be back to normal. And look, some more people may have died. We don't know. You know, probably some would have, although I certainly don't think it would have been a huge number because of the, the structure of Australia, the climate, Okay, it's very urbanised, but it's not densely populated. Um, And we have a very good health system, extremely good health system. So, you know, some more people would have died, but, you know, we've we've taken on about $600 billion of debt, you know, to to save these few thousand people, um, which is probably more than we spent on the Second World War. Uh, So, you know, if you're a government, you're meant to make rational assessments about these things, but certainly that's, that's... that has not happened in the past year. What's the, um, I know that Australia hasn't really, they, they've entertained the mask regime, but they haven't really embraced it. What, what's going on in <laughs> oh Australia God, with the masks? <laughs> God, I hate masks so much. Um, <laughs> and I'm furious that I have to wear it again in DC now. Oh God, anyway, um, but that's another story. Look, the masks, well, in Melbourne, um, which is the capital of Victoria, Masks have been mandatory pretty much outside even since May last year. (laughs) So, I mean, that's a long time, right, of having to wear masks. Um, And in Sydney, it's a relatively new thing. I mean, the the interesting thing on the internal politics was until quite recently, Sydney and New South Wales, the biggest state, was considered far more um, hands-off with the virus. And there was this false belief, as it turned out, although I thought it was false to begin with, that that the two states had you know, had different ideologies about how to handle the virus, when, of course, that wasn't the case at all. It's just that New South Wales, through whatever, uh, through luck, I would say, just didn't have much virus. Now it does, so it's fully locked down and you've got to wear masks. But to my knowledge, in Sydney, you don't have to wear them outside. It's only in Melbourne you have to wear them outside. But in Brisbane, which is the third biggest city, that's the capital of Queensland, you do have to wear masks outside. And indeed, a man was arrested just a few days ago which made big headlines in Australia. He was walking in a park uh, without a mask and some police ran after him and, and uh, crash tackled him and he had a heart attack and had to go to the hospital. So, and it was just because he wasn't wearing a mask outside in a park. So, you know, complete, complete madness. Um, and as you well know, the, the efficacy of masks is, is, you know, to put it lightly, debatable. <laughs> um, I think that's been generous, actually. But... Uh, and yet, you know, you can get fined for not wearing them in Australia. It's uh, it's a new thing. Australians have never had to wear masks since the Spanish flu, you know, hundred years ago. Um, but of course, no one has any memory of that. So, when Australians come back, the ones who can get back into the country, from what I understand, they have to go through like a mandatory quarantine yeah. detention center type of situation <laughs> yes. and do they do they have to they also have to pay their way yeah, yeah, that's right so it's still 14 days and it's it's kind of 
in a hotel where there are security guards watching that you can't go outside your room. So it's, you know, it's a proper quarantine. It's not like you just you know, go home and, you know, stay home for 10 days. It's you are literally trapped in a hotel room with supervised guards for 14 days. And from memory, you've got to pay three and a half thousand dollars to contribute to that. So, so I mentioned the business class air ticket to get home. Then you've got to pay another 3000 at least a quarantine for two weeks. So that just adds to the cost. Uh, but yeah, it's extraordinary. Even if you're vaccinated, you still have to do this. Even if you've had COVID, you have to do this. Even if you've both, you know, been vaccinated and had COVID, you have to do this. Um, there is zero flexibility, and I'm pretty sure it it even applies uh, going between some states. <laughs> so even domestically, right? If you go from Sydney to Perth, say, I think you might have to do the quarantine. I'm not I'm not 100 sure on that, but I'm but but there's something you know something crazy like that. Uh, and, you know, the sad thing about this is I think it's just partly uh, a deep-seated desire to punish people who have been overseas um, because there's not much science behind 14 days, especially now, it's 16 months on, where they can do more tests and there's, there's various types of tests. Uh, you can shorten it. But, but I, think, I think a lot of Australians who don't travel, right? I mean, Australians have a big reputation as travellers. And certainly lots of them travel, but there's also a big group that don't travel and they also vote. And remember in Australia too, something to remind your listeners is that it's compulsory voting, right? So that's a big change in the political culture of the government, right? So it's a very centrist government because it knows everyone has to vote. So it always caters to the median person who typically has zero idea about anything, let's face it. So, so that is the person that they need to appeal to. And that person probably doesn't travel, frankly. Um, and they probably don't care about quarantine. So therefore, the government doesn't care about quarantine. And so that's why I think a lot of things that are coming out, which are shocking foreigners about it, about the Australian government's uh, behaviour, like the brutality of it, is that the median voter doesn't care. And so therefore, the government doesn't care. Interesting. It's just, um, I don't know if this is an Australian thing or a Western culture thing cultural phenomenon as a whole but you know as a foreign policy guy and someone a little familiar with military history and international affairs i think americans in particular associate australians and their military with people who have been um great allies since forever um especially you know world war ii helping us beat up the japanese every single conflict that america has gotten into whether it was a good or a bad conflict, the Australians are always, you know, ready, willing to help, ready to fight. Um, so we thought of Australians as these like kind of like independent, hard-nosed community of people. And I think that's why a lot of like Americans, especially right-wing Americans, are kind of shocked to see the subservience mm. to the government. Is there a way that you can kind of like translate it, have have you seen a, a like a, a cultural unraveling, or is this like a a symptom of a greater Western cultural phenomenon? Like, is it Australia well, specific? Uh, look, I mean, there are obviously deep deep questions there. Firstly, on our military, I think it's still a very good military, and we are very strong allies with the US. And you're quite right; we fought in every war with the US. I think we're the only country to have done that. Um, um, that's that's it in modern history, at least. Uh, Look, I think it was it was a myth to begin with that the that the typical Australian was 
um, kind of anything but subservient, really. I mean, we have a much, Australians are very pro-government. They believe the government has the answers typically to everything because Australia was a government project, really. It was a, you know, we never fought for our freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, the government gave us our freedom from Britain. Britain was happy to get rid of us. Uh, there was, you know, no war. I mean, Australia is a much younger country, remember? I mean, we're only, we're only colonised in, what, 1788, right? So the US was already a country by that stage, and we were just having our first ships arrive. So I mean, it's a big, big difference in age. And then we were, we were still part of Britain until 1901, right? which is, you know, not that long ago. Yeah. And so I think Australians look to the government to solve their problems, which is not, not necessarily a good thing, but it's always been a benign force, the Australian government. And maybe this episode will change that, at least in the minds of a significant bunch of, of the country, but, but up to this point, it's been a benign force. So I think that explains why people are going along with these regulations. But look, it has been a shock, and not just to me. I mean, very, very senior people in, in the Australian political system, and, of course, I'd never mention their names, but, you know, I, I kind of talked to some of them, and, and they've been extraordinarily shocked in private at, at, at the apathy and and the acquiescence uh, and having, you know, fundamental rights taken away for so long. And I think it all boils down to, and we haven't, you know, we haven't discussed this yet, but the media just, you know, scared the daylights out of everyone. Yeah. And Australians think that the virus is far worse than it actually is. And I would say even more so than Americans. I mean, the thing about being an American now, you've had this virus here for so long that I think the ordinary American has a fair idea what the virus entails. And that is, frankly, not a great deal for the vast bulk of people. I mean, I meet Americans all the time. They've had the virus. They're fine. You know, they had a sore throat for a few days, a fever or whatever, and now they're okay. Whereas in Australia, no one knows anyone who's had it, right? And so there's this idea that, you know, if you get it, you're going to die. Right. And the media it doesn't help with that at all, right? Um, so, yeah, so that, that kind of that it, adds it to the fear. It kind of reminds me of where the United States was. I guess the typical American was in around February or March of 2020. You know, there was a lot of mystery surrounding the virus. And I suppose, um, especially if you're Australian, you're pro you've probably been stuck in the country. So you have really nothing to yeah, relate yeah. And to. It's, and it's extraordinary how Australians think the US has, has just been ravaged by, you know, ravaged by COVID. Look, obviously there have been a lot of deaths, but... I mean, the contrast between the reality I see right now, like I'm looking at my window at the tidal basin, there are people paddling, it's all very normal, it's sunny, there's traffic. You know, this is, this is, this is not a crisis right now, right? It's basically normal Washington. And yet if you asked Australians, they probably think there's, you know, bodies outside and people dying, you know, hospitals filling up. I mean, it's completely absurd, right? And even in Florida, which is, you know, supposedly the epicentre of some massive crisis right now, I just checked this morning, and, and they've still got plenty of ICU beds. It's, it's nowhere near capacity. But, but if you ask an Australian what's happening in Florida, oh, they'd be saying that everyone is dying, right? Um, yeah. So there's a huge disconnect between reality and, and perception. I think what's been eye-opening to a lot of, um, you know, my friends, colleagues, contacts, especially when they come to Florida and, like, you know, this is more so during the lockdown era, when you had more free states open and for the, like my friends from New York, New Jersey would come out to like bars and whatnot and see like, you know, no one's wearing masks, everyone's on next to each other. And then they come back and they realize like, am I being scammed by my government? And I, it, it's, 
it's unfortunate for Australians because they've never really been put in a position where they can see the counter example. Exactly. And, and although there's like, have they been like, has like, have you talked to them about Sweden or anything like that? Like, <laughs> well, I certainly have a lot in my columns and, <laughs> and I, you know, I think that, that Sweden got it right. Clearly. I mean, it's just self-evident. Um, you know, they had roughly the same number of deaths as everywhere else. And they, they had a relatively normal year, right? Um, yeah, relatively, there were still some restrictions, but certainly nothing like what happened in Australia or, or indeed anywhere else. Um, well, look, I think there's a sense people don't want to know, right? I mean, they've just they've just had this 16 months of extraordinary chaos. And, you know, I think it's worth stressing too. It's not just the restrictions kind of at the moment. It's, it's, the, it's the tearing apart of the social fabric, which will last decade at least, right? It's, it's, it's the sowing of extraordinary discord and hatred amongst people, which it has done. I mean, this, you know, the arguments about these restrictions have broken friendships forever and, you know, destroyed relationships on a massive scale, like nothing I've never seen in my life. I mean, there's people I will just never talk to again, right, because of this issue, because I genuinely think that a lot of these policies are frankly evil. Um, and so that is a cost of these policies too, right? You, you try to implement things that are meant for a, you know, a system like China where they may work. I don't know. Like if you can shoot people, if they disobey, maybe it works, maybe lockdowns, you know, work. But if you can't shoot people, then they, they're not as effective, right, because people will break them. Um, but anyway, I'm kind of getting off on a tangent now. But I'm just, you know, the point is the costs of these policies are huge and they're far beyond the economic, far beyond that. Um, and they're going to reverberate for, you know, for a generation. And there'll be arguments about this for decades. And, and frankly, I think you and I are certainly on the right side of the argument. But, you know, I mean, I could be wrong. But, uh, you know, in a year or so, there's going to, well, maybe not a year, it's going to be five years, there'll start to be inquiries about what, what happened, right? And then people without a vested interest in the lockdown will be, will start talking about it. You know, and there'll be academics who just want to be right, you know, like they want to be correct, which is what it used to be about. And I think then you'll see the humiliation of a lot of these strategies. Yeah, this is what I worry about um, on the propaganda side of things, because uh, so I went to public school growing up. And what I remember is um, that the U.S. public school system teaches you that it was FDR and his New Deal policies that got America out of the Great Depression and, you know, all this government intrusion. And that is now like the new reality because people have been propagandized to believe that. Mm -hmm. Do you see that being a possible, like I have a hard time seeing, especially a population like Australia, where you have all the politicians involved. Do you think that they're just going to try to like reshape uh, history in, in that sense that they're just going to manipulate the conversation yeah. to, to end up with a, with a win of some sort? Look, it's a good point. And I think it's certainly true that the winners the winners always write history, right? So, I mean, so if the lockdown people win all this, then, yeah, they're going to write history books. But but I think the difference between the propaganda around the New Deal and around this situation is that, you know, with economics, especially with macroeconomics, it's far harder to pin, you know, to pin down what's right, what's correct, because it, it, it's frankly very complicated. Mm -hmm. But I think with this, the data is a lot more transparent and it's a lot more available uh, and there are so many counterexamples and there are so many counterfactuals. You know, I mean, you mentioned Sweden one, but, you know, there are, there are lots of Asian countries that never locked down. Um, there are lots of South American countries that did completely different things and yet, you know, their outcomes are largely the same. 
And I do think that there'll be, you know, because the academic industry is so large, uh, people will be studying the costs of the lockdowns as well, right? They'll be doing PhDs on it for decades. Yeah. And so a lot of these facts will be out there. Um, and also, when we're having these inquiries over the next five to 10 years, some of the long-term costs of the lockdowns will starting, to, you know, will be bearing fruit, right? I mean, whether it's delinquencies or drug overdoses or suicides or whatever it is, they don't happen now. They happen in five years' time, right, or, you know, five or ten years' time. And so they're going to be more on the press, those issues at the time. And so, look, look. I mean, I, I think, no, I think that the evidence will be so overwhelming that these intrusions were at best of negligible benefit but came with extraordinary costs that they'll that, that will be the conclusion. Um and actually, it's interesting, just in recent days, I'm sure you've seen, but even China's having to reimpose lockdowns. Have you seen this there? So it didn't even work there. Um, That's what they say. I'm, well, I'm they not say convinced. Yeah. Maybe they're just, saying that. Maybe they're just saying that. I don't know. I don't know. I think you're even more cynical than me. On this, yeah. but that's that's fine. I don't trust anything that comes out of the Chinese government, uh, <laughs> their propaganda channels. All right. So one, one final question, mm-hmm. uh, and I really appreciate your time. Uh, so today is August 5th, 2021. What is life like in Sydney or Melbourne on August 5th, 2022? Is it still a total mess? <laughs> well, you know, it's so funny because I did a tweet literally a year ago uh, criticizing the Victorian government, saying it was a dictatorship and it was crazy. And last night I just tweeted it out again <laughs> and it still applies. <laughs> so, so <laughs> I mean, I seriously hope it still does not apply in one year time. Um, and look, what do I think the situation will be? Look, I guess I'm kind of more optimistic. I think things will be relatively normal. I think the international border will be open again, but very sadly, I think there will be a lot of COVID restrictions that stay with us forever. And they could include mask wearing on planes, mask wearing on buses, uh, you know, sanitizing. I mean, the, like a whole litany of, of what I think is garbage. Um, but I think that will still be with us in a year's time. But I sincerely hope that the lockdowns are not. And, and you know, surely they just can't be. It's too costly. And it's, and I think another year of lockdowns, even for normal people who don't pay much attention, it will just become so absurd that, that the political support for them will fall away. I mean, it's already happening. And it's actually good to see in the US now so many so many governors say, look, we are not locking down again, regardless of what the cases do. I just wish that more Australian states would, you know, would act like that. Adam Creighton, really appreciate it. Um, how do we get to your column or at The Australian or follow you on social media? <laughs> yeah, well, it's a paywall, but you can uh, you can get all my columns up on my Twitter, my Twitter page, which is just Adam underscore Crichton on Twitter. Um, or you can just Google me and you'll get my like, list of articles. So, yeah. So I hope you read. <laughs> yeah. Adam's stuff is, is among the best in any of the, uh, the Western press. And he's been on this beat for, for quite some time and has faced the forces of COVID tyranny very heroically. Uh, thanks for your time, Adam. Thanks very much for having me. It was great.